Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Hey, congratulations on braving the elements and getting to church this morning um, at 9 o'clock for our first service. I checked and it was 2 degrees outside. So take that, global warming, huh? Right? It's got nothing on Michigan. Um, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can we open them up to 1 Corinthians 3? We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have ushers that are coming down the aisle right now that love to get a copy of God's Word to you. And if you don't own a Bible, keep it. We'd love for you to take that home and for that to be your Bible. And if you're visiting with us or you're new, my name is Calvin. And I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm just so thankful that you're worshiping with us. And it is such a pleasure to worship with this church every single weekend. And I'm just thankful that you're joining with us. We are in our third week of our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. We're kind of doing a chapter a week all the way up until Easter. And in the first part of this book, Corinthians was a church that was planted by Paul... It's a young church. It's a church that's living in a very difficult culture and a culture that is running away from God and they're struggling and there's a lot of issues going on in their church. But one of the primary issues in the Corinthian church was that they weren't unified. There was arguing, there was fighting, there was bickering and they couldn't even figure out who to follow. Some were like, I want to follow Paul because he planted the church. Some were like, I want to follow Apollos because he was the pastor that came after Paul. And others were like, I want to follow Peter because he was a disciple of Jesus. There, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's fighting. The church is kind of a mess. And uh, what Paul is going to do is he's going to press in on this issue of who do we follow as a church and what does it mean to be a church that is unified? So here's the big idea this morning. So if you're taking notes, write this down. It's this. It's that churches that last value us before I. Churches that last value us collectively before I individually. If we are going to have any chance to be a unified church, it's very, very simple, family. We've got to empty ourselves of us to lay down our rights and our preferences out of love for other people. We've got to value what's best for others rather than just be consumed with ourselves. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. All right, so if we are really disciples of Jesus Christ, if we're his follower, guess what that means? It means it's more than just wearing a WWJD bracelet. It's more than a bumper sticker on a car or a post on Facebook. It is living like Jesus lived, loving like Jesus loved, and emptying ourselves of us, just like Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that he would come to earth and die on a cross for our sins. Are we truly going to be followers of Christ or are we going to live a life that's consumed with ourselves? And church, you need to hear this. Being a disciple of Jesus and living a life that is consumed with you are mutually exclusive ideals. But we have a sin nature that always wants to draw our hearts back to us. So this is a constant battle that we are going to have to fight until the Lord returns or we enter into glory. Are we going to be servants or selfish and Paul is going to press in on this chapter. And it's a really God-ordained word for our church this weekend, which you'll see in a little bit. But look at verse 1 with me. It says this. It says, But brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh and as infants in Christ. 
I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you still are of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And what Paul's going to do in these three verses is he's going to identify two ways that this church has it backwards. Rather than valuing us before I, they are valuing I before us. And he's going to lay this out two ways that they're doing this. So the first way we know that we are valuing I before us is when immaturity is persistent. When immaturity is persistent, he goes, when I planted this church when I came, I couldn't give you real spiritual food. I had to treat you as a baby and only give you milk. And even now, I still can't feed you with real food. I have to give you milk because you're acting like a baby and you're living with immaturity. All right, church, look here. We need to understand this. Immaturity in a church is a healthy thing. Some of you are like, what? Healthy churches will have a healthy dose of immaturity because that means that there's new believers and people just beginning their walk with Christ and the gospel is reaching people. Healthy churches will have a healthy dose of immaturity. It's a good thing. One of my favorite things in ministry is when I meet with someone and they're like, man, I just recently gave my life to Christ and my life is kind of a mess and I've got some relationships that are problematic, but I'm trying to trust the Lord. I'm trying to follow him and I'm learning so much and he's changing my life and it's amazing. That's a good thing. I would never want to be a part of a church where everyone was mature because that would be a stagnant, dying church where new people weren't being reached with the gospel. Immaturity is a good thing. Paul's issue is, is that immaturity is persistent and he's not seeing growth. It's okay to be immature when you're new in the faith, but we need to ask ourselves, am I actually growing in Christ? Am I having more victory over sin? Is there more joy in the Lord? Is my walk with Jesus closer and more love-filled today than it was six months ago, a year ago, two years ago? Or am I just going through the motions, staying in the same place? Throw up uh, the next slide. So this is my son Judah. He's my youngest. He's the baby of the family. He's four. And uh, we call him Beautiful Judah because he looks like his mommy. And uh, he doesn't love that nickname. He's like, I'm a boy. I'm handsome. I'm like, no, you're beautiful. You're beautiful, Judah. And uh, here's the thing. He's a sweet kid. I love him to death. He has completed our family. He's amazing. But he's a four-year-old. And he's immature. Four-year-olds have two gears. What do I want and how do I get it right now? And if that combination isn't met, it's whining or tears. He's immature. It wouldn't be fair to compare Judah to my eight-year-old daughters who have lived twice as long as he has. My eight-year-old girls, they think about other people. They can bathe themselves. They can feed themselves. They, they can pick out their clothes in the morning. Um, this Christmas, when uh, we got up early and went to the Christmas tree, I didn't even know about this, but Ashley, my eight-year-old daughter, goes, Hey, wait, before we open any presents, I need to go and get all the presents I've made for all of you. And she brought down like 15 crafts that she had made and gave one to everyone in our family. And it's like, Judah would never do that, right? Judah's like, I want my present and I don't want your stinking craft. I want toys, right? That's all he can think. So I would never compare Judah to my girls or say to them, why aren't you more like your sisters? It wouldn't be fair, right? But what we want to see is Judah growing and is he maturing? Right? And listen, does he act like a terrorist most of the time? Yes. <laughs> but he is growing and he is maturing. He's not pooping in his pants anymore. Right? We'll celebrate that win. 
Look here. Nobody in this room is where they want to be spiritually. All of us wish we were farther down the line and had more victory and had more growth and was in a more mature place. But the goal has never been to be the finished product. And the goal has never been to be as mature as the person next to you. The goal has been, is the process happening is God moving in my heart? Am I growing? And by the way, that's slow. And sometimes you feel like you're tripping over your own feet. But we need to ask ourselves, am I growing in maturity? It wasn't happening in this church because they were valuing I before us. And that leads to the second way I know I is being valued over, than, over us is that my relationships are filled with chaos. My relationships are filled with chaos. Look at verse 3. For you are still of the flesh... For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. The, the relationships in that church were not characterized by love and service. It was jealousy and strife. And think about the word jealousy. Isn't that the definition of I before us? Jealousy is saying, listen, you have something that I want. And because you have something that I want and I don't have it, I'm going to be anger, angry and I'm going to be miserable and I'm going to make it all about me. And what is the outflowing of jealousy? It's always strife and relational breakdown every time. And um, it's a problem, jealousy and strife. So here's the question, how do you know if you have a jealous heart? Like, how do I know if my heart is jealous? Can I, have a, can I ask you a question? There's a really easy tell. Are you able to celebrate in the blessings and victories of other people? Or do you make that all about yourself? And does that make you insecure and frustrated? All right, so here's what I mean. Like, think about worship this morning. Like, listen, I wish I could sing like Alec Bright, right? He's got an incredible voice. I was going to say I wish I could sing like Brooke, but that's weird because she's a girl, so I'll use Alec. And I'm like, man, I wish I could sing and not have people run away. That would be amazing. But listen, I love that God has gifted Alec that way. I love that he can serve and bless our church in that way. It's something that I want to celebrate in Alec and not just make it about me so I'm upset or mean or angry about his platform or his giftedness. Does that make sense? So it can be giftedness we can be jealous of. It can be position, right? My boss is an idiot, and I could do a way better job than him, and he doesn't deserve that job. Do we resent people because they have a position that we would like to have? Or can we celebrate their success? Maybe it's a relationship. I think this is a big one. Man, I wish I was at the cool kid table. I wish I was in the in crowd. I wish I had the same type of friendships that this person in my small group has or, or this person in my neighborhood has. Can we celebrate the good things in others or do we make it about ourselves and does it cause frustration and bitterness? We need to ask ourselves that question. And here's the truth. We live in a broken and fallen world and that means all of us are going to deal with conflict. There is no one in here that is immune to conflict. Conflict is a result of sin. Think about the garden, right? Adam and Eve, uh, they eat of the fruit that they're not supposed to, and instantly they're in conflict. Adam goes to God, he's like, hey, listen, it's not my fault I ate the fruit, it's that woman that you gave me, it's her fault. He's throwing her under the bus. And Eve's like, don't call me woman, bro, right? I'm your wife. And uh, it was the serpent's fault. They're arguing and they're fighting. There's instantly conflict. So here's the truth. Even when you love and serve people well, you're going to find yourself in conflict. It's part of the brokenness of the world we live in. 
right? But you all know the person, right, who's like, man, I hate drama. And yet everywhere in their life is filled with drama. And it's like, you obviously love drama because you run to drama like it's your job. Okay, here's the thing. All of us are going to have seasons of conflict. But we need to be humble enough and look at ourselves. And it's like, man, if my life is filled with conflict, if my relationships are filled with conflict, if there's trouble at work and trouble at home and trouble at church and, and, and trouble with family, right? There's only one common denominator and that's me. Maybe my heart is jealous. Maybe I am valuing just thinking about myself over everyone else. Maybe I am the source of the conflict. Okay, so here's the question. What's the best way out of conflict? Maybe you're here and you're finding yourself in a, in a difficult relationship or there's conflict in your life. How, how do we end that? Um, can I use you two girls right here? Can you guys come up on stage? I need, to, I need to use you for an example. You sit in the front row, this could happen. You should know this by now. <laughs> So come up here. So you two were sitting together. Are, your friend, are you friends? Yeah. Oh, wow. That was creepy how you did that. Um, what are your names? Uh, Katie. Katie. Elizabeth. And Elizabeth. Nice to meet you guys. What, what grade are you guys in? Uh, ninth. Ninth. Wow, freshman. Sorry about that. Um, okay, so you guys are friends? Yeah. Have you guys ever gotten in an argument or a fight before? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I was hoping your relationship was perfect, but I was wrong. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at each other. And I want to give us a picture of what conflict is. So you guys know how to make like a finger gun? Can you like point it at each other? Isn't this a picture of conflict? Right? It's like, this is how you've hurt me. This is why I'm upset with you. This is why you're wrong. And then she's going back to you. Well, this is why you're terrible. And this is why I'm upset with you. And and this is why it's wrong. This is how fights happen, right? You you kind of get in like this trench warfare. I'm not backing down. So here's the question. When you're in a fight, how does the fight end? No, keep the finger guns up. (laughs) <laughs> Here's what you do. Can I show you? No, no, no. You stand. stand. Take the gun and turn it on yourself. This is how you end conflict. You be humble and own everything you can own. Here's why. When she stops shooting at you, but it's like, you know what? This is where I've hurt you, and this is where I've been wrong. Do you need to keep shooting her anymore? Nope. So then what do you do? You, like, cry and hug and forgive her and yeah. start shooting yourself, right? <laughs> right? That's what happens. You see, so often we're like, no, I've got to win, and I've got to be right, But that only makes things worse. But when you're humble and own what you can own, so often the other person's like, wow, thank you for saying that, and I was wrong too, and that's where healing can begin. Thank you guys. You guys can sit down. Appreciate it. Can we give them a round of applause for helping me? Um, We've said this before. Even if you're only 5% of the problem, own 100% of your 5%. Can I take that even farther? Even if you're only 5% of the problem, will it really kill you to own 10%? Will it kill you to be like, you know what, even if I didn't intend that, or or that's not even necessarily real, or you're perceiving that wrong, still forgive me if that's what you perceive, right? And I know there's some high truth people in here who's like, I don't like that, Cal. That doesn't feel good. I shouldn't have to own more than I have to own. I don't like what you're telling me. Okay, can I remind you about Jesus? Isn't the whole story of the gospel that Jesus owned everything when he didn't have to own anything so that he could heal our relationship between us and God? Like, can't we follow him and trust him and say, listen, I'm going to own more than I even have to because I care more about loving you in unity than being right. Jesus cares that we are unified. And so what I'm pleading with you, if there's a broken relationship with someone in this church or in your life, go the extra mile to pursue Unity, you won't regret it. Look at verse 4. 
Paul says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. All right, so you see Paul pressing in on this foundational issue. Do I follow Paul or do I follow Apollos? And he's like, listen, it's not about either of us. And what he's doing is he's exposing a faulty foundation this church was um, living on, and it's this. Um, they were too dependent on a single voice. Everyone had their own teacher. And they're like, I'm an Apollos guy, and he's my um, teacher, and I'm only going to listen to him. And, and because I'm only going to listen to him, that means he must be better than Paul, because if I'm following the right guy, I'll feel better about myself. They were in camps of who their teacher was. And look again what Paul says in verse 4, or in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. If you take notes in your Bible, underline the word what in verse 5. Notice how he is purposefully dehumanizing himself. He's purposely saying, we are not a big deal at all. It's not who is Apollos, it's what. All we are are servants and tools that God is using. We are on the same team and the Lord is moving through each and every one of us. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message and the God that is moving. I was thinking a lot this week of how do I apply this idea to our context? We don't have Paul. We don't have Apollos. Those are guys that lived a long time ago. And um, this is really weird for me to talk about and kind of awkward for me to say. But did you know that by church definition, we are a megachurch? Um, I've always like, thought that that's weird because I never think about us that way because we don't really live in a big city and, and that was never a goal or a dream of ours. But technically, by the number of people who come here each weekend, we are. And there are very real and, and um, credible critiques of megachurches. There's dangers with a lot of people coming to one church. And one of those critiques are the church is too big. That you can't be known, you can't do life with people, you can't have real community because there's simply so many people. Now what I love about our church is we don't have like one sanctuary that seats thousands and thousands of people. In fact, we have five services and what's cool is, is every service averages between about 575 people and 650 and most of you all attend the same service. So when you come here, you're really like coming to church with the same group of 600 people. Like when you look across the aisle, you see the same person because we're all weird creatures of habits and moving seats terrifies us, right? So you can be known because our space is pretty small and we can connect that way. Like I've seen um, the same faces looking at me. I've seen Drew Carey sitting in that chair looking at me for years. So it, I think it is possible for you to know who you come to church with, but that's another reason why small groups is such a lifeblood of our church. And man, I just hung out with our small group leaders on a Friday night. We had a training night. Man, do I love our small group leaders, and they love our church, and they're so excited to gather together with you and to serve you and to walk with you in your relationship with Christ. 
Small groups, um, it's when we get together during the week and we have time where we pray together, we have time where we study God's word together, but we also hold each other accountable and call each other to be better disciples of Christ. And the cool thing is, when I hear our small group leaders talk, they just love what they get to do and who they get to lead and who they get to serve. It's such an awesome thing. You need to be a part of a small group because if you're not, you are gonna fall through the cracks and not have the community that God would call you to have. So one complaint is they're too big. The other major complaint about mega churches or big churches is that it's too dependent on one person. That so often big churches happen because there's one preacher and he's an incredible preacher and he's got a great gift. So he draws a bunch of people in, but if he leaves, the church falls apart. They're like, it's dangerous because it's too dependent on one person. And this is something that I'm so thankful for. And this is something that I got to credit my dad to because when he started this ministry... He was like, I don't want to make it dependent on just myself. And so he took me, who was a moron 24-year-old, and Chris, who was a moron 24-year-old, and he allowed us to develop our preaching gift right from the beginning. And we weren't very good. We didn't know what we were doing. But my dad was like, listen, I don't want it to be just about Dave Wissen. I want to develop younger preachers. And that is a DNA that we have carried. And I think it puts us in a really healthy place. Like, here's one of my favorite things about our church you guys have no idea who's preaching when you come into church on Sunday. You're like, I hope someone's preaching, right? But it could be Dave, it could be Cal, or it could be Ryan, or it could be another uh, younger guy on staff who we're developing. I love that we're a church that is committed to developing younger preachers. Some of my favorite weekends of the year is when I get to hear Taylor preach. And I get to hear Nate preach because they are faithful and they love God's word. And God is growing them and using them powerfully. And I want to be a part of what God does in their life in ministry. We have tried really hard to not make this about a single person. And I believe we're healthy in this. And look here. Everyone's going to have their preference. It's okay. You're going to have certain preachers that you gravitate to and like more. Some of you might really gravitate to my dad because you like old people, right? Like that's, no, no problem there. That, that's your preference. Some of you might be drawn to me. Some of you might be drawn to Ryan. We have different styles. We communicate a little bit differently. But here's the thing. It, it's never been about the messenger. It's been about the message. So it's okay to have a preference, but just don't make it a thing. Like, come to church every single weekend being like, no matter who's preaching, the word of God is like a lion and we're letting it out of its cage and it's going to do work on our hearts. And come with an expectation that God's spirit is going to move because his word is powerful and it has the power to change our lives right now. All right? We have to have that expectation. I remember when I was 23, I was a very, very young pastor. I was a youth pastor in Orlando. And the church that was there, they let me preach on a Sunday morning for the first time. So I was super nervous. I practiced it like 12 times. Um, and I preached on a, on a Sunday. I, the message was done. I was in the parking lot, headed to my car. We were going home. I was exhausted. It had been a long week for me. And an older guy goes, hey, you. And uh, he started walking toward me. So I'm like, oh, no, here it comes. And uh, there's a guy I didn't recognize. I think he was new to the church. I'd never met him before. And he goes, um, you know, I need to tell you something. When uh, you got up on stage to preach, I thought to myself, what is this young whippersnapper going to say to me that's going to teach me anything about God's word? But you know what? You weren't terrible. <laughs> and I was like, do I say thank you to that? Like, is that a compliment? I'm confused. But here's what I'm saying. Before I ever got on stage, 
I was fighting an uphill battle because he believed that God's word could only be used through certain messengers. It's not the case. God's word is sufficient to change our heart no matter who's communicating. So we don't want to be just about one voice. Amen? All right, let's keep going. Look at verse 10. It says, according to the grace that God has given me, like a skilled uh, and master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though, the, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple Here's the second faulty foundation Paul is revealing. They were way too consumed with right now. They were way too consumed with right now. And what Paul's saying is, listen, I laid a foundation. That was my job. And other people are going to build upon it. And in fact, the church, you are responsible for building the ministry of Jesus Christ. But he goes, listen, there's a day coming where we're all going to stand before the Lord and give an account. How did we build the kingdom of God? And how did we build up the church? And what he's trying to do is he's trying to get their eyes off of right now on themselves onto eternity. Hey, there's a day that's coming when none of this arguing and bickering over Paul and Apollos is going to matter. But we're going to stand face to face before Jesus. And he's going to say, how did you love my family and how did you build up the church? And then later he says, listen, remember, you are God's temple. And if you try to tear it down, God will destroy you. God cares deeply about a unified church what he's saying is is as followers of jesus christ we're called to live with an eternal focus get your eyes off of power get your eyes off of your position or who you think is the best get your eyes on eternity because that's going to make what you're called to do very very clear um i remember when um again when i was living in orlando i was 23 years old and um i had a really really bad week and the week was really, really difficult because I um, found out my wife and I were having a miscarriage with our first child. And that was really sad and emotional for us. And on the very day we found that out, our partners in ministry in Orlando and our best friends, Ryan and Carrie, were literally packing up the U-Haul and moving to North Carolina to take another job at another ministry. So in the same moment, we were grieving the loss of a child and we were losing our best friends. And I remember in that moment being like, this is more than I can bear. This is more than I can handle. And I was consumed with my circumstances. And I had an older person in the church just come sit with me and cry with me over the loss of the child. But he goes, listen, he goes, Cal, there is a day coming where this moment will simply be a vapor. And you will be with the Lord forever. And you will see your child in heaven. And, and you'll be reunited with your friends. And none of this will matter because you will be with Christ. And it's amazing how that changes how we view our circumstances. If I'm only looking at right now, then, I, then things get cloudy. And it's how does this affect me? And, and how do I respond? And, and how do I navigate these difficult circumstances? But when my eyes on eternity, it's like, you know what? I want to love people well. I want to honor the Lord, 
and I want to press into faith because that's all I'm going to have when it's all said and done. Think about your life on your last breath. What do you want that to look like? Doesn't that make so much clarifying? Like I know for me, when I'm on my deathbed, Lord willing, I've got my wife with me and I've got my daughters and my sons and hopefully their spouses and my grandkids and we are hugging each other and praising the Lord and crying together and saying, I'm going to see you again soon. That's my, that's my dream. And so if, if I'm thinking, man, what is most important in my life? And then even more than that, what's most important in eternity? Life gets very, very simple. And what Paul's saying is, is we need to love each other because we're family. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 says this. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so because there's a day coming when we're going to step into eternity, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks of oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And here's what I love about that passage. It says, because the end is coming... This is what we should do, and it's all about loving and serving one another. Because these are the relationships that are going to last into eternity. The time we spend caring and loving for one another has an eternal reward. Can I ask you a question? What are the thoughts and circumstances that dominate your mind? What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything else? And how would your thinking change if you viewed that through the lenses of eternity? I think we need to ask ourselves that question. Look at verse 18 as we wrap up. It says this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Okay, here's the last thing we see from this chapter. Churches that last know who they belong to. They know who they belong to. I want you to look again at verse 21. He's saying, let no one boast in men. It's not about your pastor. It's not about your small group leader. It's not about your counselor. Let no one boast in men. And then he says, um, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. That everything that God is doing, he has given for your benefit that you might grow and that you might have victory because you are his child. Church, look here. I am privileged to serve you as your lead pastor and it is a joy in my life. But I don't think for a second that you are mine. I would never think that. I would never think that you are harvests or that you are your small group leaders. Here's the thing. In a million years from now, my name won't matter. Harvest won't even be a thought. But listen, we will still be Jesus Christ. We are Christ. He is our hope. He is our future. He is our glory. 
And so we need to remember that out of anything else in this world, the most true thing about us is that we are children of the King and that we are Christ's. You see, the Corinthian church had lost this. There were Paul's people, there was Apollos' people, and Paul is saying we need to get our minds back on Christ, and if we can do that, we're going to love each other well, and we will be unified because we're looking at the right thing. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm just so thankful for how sharp your word is and how it cuts through joint and marrow and can pierce our hearts. And God, forgive us for taking our eyes off of you. Forgive us for being consumed with circumstances and not viewing them through the lens of eternity. Thank you for reminding us of who you are and your goodness and greatness to us. We love you. You are so, so good. Let us build our life on you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.